It is a delight to be here, as always. And on behalf of my family, I want to thank you for being a beautiful expression of the body of Christ to us. We moved summer of 2019 from uh, the state of Washington near Seattle and uh, down to here in order for me to take this position at Biola. And as you know, if you've moved, one of the difficult things is saying goodbye to your church family and then finding a new church family to say hello to. And we were uh, progressing along that process. We had said our goodbye and we were saying hello here. And then everyone went home for a few months and it made it very difficult for us to put down roots and feel as though we were part of this body doing it remotely. And we were so pleased when in the summer we started gathering here in the parking lot. This has been such a beautiful gathering for us. So thank you for being who you are. We look forward to the full gathering. Those of you who are joining us uh, from the live stream, we look forward to everyone being together and we look forward to being back in that building. Although we have not spent any time in that building. This is the parking lot church to us. You may know it differently. We worshiped up in Washington in a basketball church and now we're doing the parking lot church thing. So as Kenny said, we are starting a new series today. This will take us through the month of February, four sermons on the theme of created, specifically that we humans are created and what that means, what the truths of scripture are around that. For some reason, the elders felt as though the world is getting this wrong. I don't know. I don't know why. Uh, they felt as though it's time for us to really focus on what the scriptural truths are. No, I'm kidding. It's obvious. Scripture is here and all, has always been here. The world is here and moving that way, and sometimes moving that way at a frightening speed. So this is something that we need to spend some time on, to recenter ourselves on Scripture, to know what is true about us, because the truth about us has a huge impact on how we live out our personal lives and how we live out our corporate life, lives as a church. So we're theming this, it's created, we're titling each sermon, What is Man? And then an answer. So the four answers today, What is Man? We are created. And then Eric will preach the remaining three on the 14th, What is Man? We are image bearers. On the 21st, What is Man? We are body and soul. And then on the last day of February the 28th, what is man? We are male and female. And again, as we read um, Psalm 8, this what is man is a quote of the Davidic Psalm, Psalm 8, which is such a beautiful and short psalm, where David asks of the Lord, the created asking of the creator, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And it says in Psalm 8, that when we behold the things that God has created, the heavens that he has created, the magnitude and the majesty of the created order speaks to his magnitude and majesty and to his holiness. And so you can feel the sense of David's question, God, you are so great and so huge and so holy, and I am so not any of that. Why do you pay attention to me? Why, when I whisper something, or don't even whisper it, I meditate something in my heart, why are you there? Why do you pay any attention? You hear my words, you know my thoughts before I speak them, Scripture says. It's a very good question, isn't it? And yet we know it's true. He does listen to each one of us. A little over a thousand years after David penned that question, 
the son of David, Jesus Christ, asked a similar question, this time in reverse, not the created inquiring of the creator, but the creator inquiring of the created. This is recorded in Matthew 16. I won't turn there. It's familiar to you. Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answer, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, maybe Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus asks a second question more pointedly of the disciples, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter, always the first one to speak, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus confirms that that's the truth. You do not, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So this is true. You, I am the Christ, Jesus reveals to the disciples. I am Messiah. Evidently, Because Jesus asked both of these questions, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? And then he uses that second question to confirm who he is. Evidently, it's important for us to consider not only what's true, but what's false. It's important for us first and foremost to affirm what's true, but given that we're in a world that is believing things that are false, all kinds of falsehoods, and we are in the world for a reason, It's also important for us to know what these falsehoods are. That's what Jesus was teaching his disciples. He knew these answers. He didn't need to be told anything. He's doing this for the sake of the disciples that they would be reminded not only of what is true, but of what is false and in common circulation. So too, we are here as a church called to be the church in a world, right? And so we are constantly reminding ourselves of what is true but we also sometimes need to remember what, is, what are the falsehoods, what are the lies, what are the myths, what are the things that are untrue that are in common circulation because we are called to speak to people, to bring the truth to them. And we're to bring the truth to them <clears throat> and be praying that the Lord would use the truth to dislodge the lie, to dislodge the error. And one thing that we need in order to do that that's very helpful is to know what the error is so that we can identify it. And that helps us to know how we describe the truth. <clears throat> Okay, so three things are accomplished by knowing both the truth and the falsehood. One is that we're able better to go into the world and to speak the truth over the falsehood. Another is that we're better able to protect the church from encroachment of the falsehood because throughout the history of the church, ideas that are wrong that gain common currency find their way, they bleed into the church, don't they? Because we're out there. We're out there in this big conversation with the world, and whatever becomes a big idea that's strongly pushed out there, it finds its way inevitably into the church. So the second reason is we need to protect true doctrine. We need to protect the church from false doctrine, and that's another reason to know what these falsehoods are. And the third is, doesn't the truth sometimes become more beautiful and bring more glory to God when we've contrasted it with the lie. Sometimes to fully appreciate how beautiful the truth is, it helps to know how ugly the lie is. So all of these things are true. When we're asking what is man then, we're wanting first and foremost to know what the true answer is, but we're also wanting to know what the falsehoods 
of our day are. And the anchor passage for this, not surprisingly, is going to be Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to be anchoring the whole series in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. I'm going to be focusing on the first part of that, uh, 26 through through 28. I'm going to read those verses, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And as I do so, I want you to be reflecting on what are the various things that are affirmed to be true in this short passage and see if you can also be thinking, oh, that's a point where the world is saying something else. Oh, the world is saying something else there too. I count seven of these and we're going we're gonna to go over this, but think about this as I read Genesis Chapter 1, starting in verse 26 and through verse 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Did you catch anything where what Scripture is affirming is contradicted by our culture? Scripture affirms in this passage, first of all, that God exists. Powerful and popular voices say the opposite. God does not exist. God is dead is a popular statement in the world. Scripture affirms here in this short passage, not only that God exists, but that he is a personal God. The world says, if he does exist, he's an impersonal God. He's detached. He's far away. He may have spun things into existence, but then he went away. He does not hear your prayers. He does not care about you. These are the messages from the world. This passage declares God to be not only our creator, but our personal creator. A personal God is revealed in this passage. The world, on the other hand, claims to have discovered an impersonal creator. The very one that Behemoth was talking about. This passage puts us humans over all creation as stewards. The world inverts that. The creation is to be worshipped, and we're a blight on creation. We're the ones, we're the worst species on the planet because we're destroying creation. This passage tells us to have babies and to see that as a good thing. Population growth is to be seen as a blessing. Flourishing is to be seen as a blessing. The world tells us the opposite. Overpopulation is a curse. We're, we're to stop having babies. This passage tells us that he made, he, God, made us male and female from the very beginning. And that this is at the core of our being. I don't need to tell you what the world is saying on this. That this is a point of extreme pushback and becoming more and more extreme. Sometimes the pushback seems ridiculous in its extremity. I'm a professor at Biola University, Christian University, as you all know. 
we are required as faculty to go through a uh, training session for, over non-discrimination. This is for compliance with Title IX. So we do it. We go through this uh, online training session. And as you might imagine, several parts of this training uh, program are in conflict with what we say we believe and what we sign that we believe as faculty at Biola University. We're complying with what the state requires and what the federal government requires. But it sometimes makes me laugh when we do it. <clears throat> There's a line in particular in a section on this training, a module on the non-binary na nature of gender. And it has a picture of a baby boy and a baby girl on, on swing sets. And it says, quote, typically health professionals label infants as male or female after a cursory examination of their external physical characteristics. I thought, are you kidding me? The, for the entire history of humankind, you're saying that we've got this wrong when the doctor or the midwife looks at the newborn and says, congratulations, you have a boy, or congratulations, it's a girl. Are you saying we should look more closely? If you examine more closely, this was too cursory, this was too superficial, you've overlooked something, look again? No, if you were to ask the doctor or the, the midwife, look again, they would say, yes, uh, as I already told you, this is a boy, or this is a girl. It doesn't get more obvious than that. So in this little line in this lesson, a fact has been caricatured as a label, as though it's a negative thing, and a decisive observation has been characterized as a cursory examination, falsehood. This is a very good example of something that C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. You may have heard of it. He defines chronological snobbery as the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that count discredited. That's exactly what we have here. The entire history of humanity knew how to tell a boy from a girl, but now that that's gone out of vogue, we pretend that we're superior. We now understand something that was not understood before, and therefore our forebears were ignorant of what we now know as truth chronological snobbery. When we consider how strongly, how forcefully, how thoroughly every point of this brief passage is fought against by the world, it's almost as though Satan photocopied this little section, passed it out to the head demons and said, take this around and oppose every single point of this. It's almost as though that is their mission. But thanks be to God, their power is limited, and we have the truth in front of us right here. So let's take a look at this. I have a lot to cover, and I'm determined to have you out of here in time for the kickoff. So I'll get you out well in time, in time for that. I've got three sections that I'm going to cover. The truth, the lie, and the remedy. And we'll start with the truth there are three key claims here in Genesis 1, just in these two verses, verses 26 and 27. The first of these three is that God acted personally and directly in the creation of humans. And this is evident 
in the fact that the language changes. If you read through the whole of chapter 1, this creation account, it is passive statements or impersonal statements up until the creation of humanity. Let there be. Let there be. And God made it so. Let there be. And God made it so. But here in verse 26, the language changes. For the first time, it is, then God said, let us make. So we have a, an active statement instead of a passive statement. And it includes this first person uh, plural pronoun, us, as though this is a conversation within the Godhead. All these others are declarations, let there be. And now we have not a declaration, but a conversation among the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us do this now. Now that we've created everything else, let us do this. Personal and direct. And then, of course, we have a second account of the creation of humanity in chapter 2 of Genesis, where we see again that this is an act of God that is both personal and direct, with nothing mediating between God and us in his creation of us. So we have, I won't read the whole thing, the entire chapter is this second closer look at the creation of humanity, but I wanted to read the portions where man, Adam, was created and where woman, Eve, was created. So in verse 7 of chapter 2 of Genesis, then the Lord God formed the man, this is Adam, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And then later on in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Personal, direct creation of man and then woman by God the Creator. The second key point here, and this is almost so obvious it doesn't need to be stated, but we are going to state it. That is, our creation was miraculous. This couldn't have happened apart from God acting. We need to state that because the counterclaim has become so popular. And what we can say is, don't back off from saying this is the claim of Scripture. The claim of Scripture is that our creation was miraculous. And someone might say, well, that's false because science has shown that it can happen without miracle. Don't back off and say, well, okay, I don't know then. Say, either Scripture is right or what you're saying is right. They can't both be right because Scripture is claiming that this is a miraculous creation. 
Again, it's saying that from the dust of the ground, man was created, and from the first man, Adam's rib, woman was created, the first woman, Eve. If you know of any natural process that turns dirt into a human being, please tell me. I've been studying this for a long time, and I say it can't happen. If you know of any natural process that can turn a rib into a woman, show me. I've been studying this for a long time, scientifically, mathematically, using computational biology. I say it can't happen. A miracle is needed for these things to take place, and we should not back down from that. Third, the third key point from this short passage is that God made humans as categorically distinct from the other created kinds, distinct from the animals, distinct even from bananas. Okay. In the image of God we are created. This is chapter 1. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That is not said of any other created kind. No other animal is made in the image of God. We are furthermore made for communion, both with one another and with God. That's not said of any other created kind. They're told to be fruitful and multiply, so there is male and female in these other animals, and they have offspring, and they get together in that way, but it's not communion. It's not the deep communion for which we were created. And we were created both for this horizontal communion, person to person, husband to wife, but also for the vertical communion, humans to our creator, no other creature. We're told by the science books that we are most closely related to the chimpanzee, they don't do this. Neither do they have communion among one another, nor do they have communion vertically with their creator. We are as unlike chimpanzees as we are unlike butterflies in this respect. We are unique, utterly, utterly separate from the other created kinds. And the third respect in which we are distinct from the other created animals is that we are given charge over creation. Here again, it's verses 26 and 28. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And in 28, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all of these created things. We are alone in creation in that we have been given charge over creation. No other creature has been given that. We stand alone, apart from all of the other created things. These are the truths. We know this, right? But it's good for us to go back over this. Okay, so now we're going to move from the truth to the lie, and then we're going to have the remedy after we talk about the lie. The lie has become very familiar as well to us. Um, it, it's the Darwinian lie is part of it, but the Darwinian lie has become part of a bigger lie, which is exactly as we've been saying, that all of this could have happened by accident, that there is no personal God over creation, that there's physics, and that physics begat a universe out of a big bang, and that the universe begat first some primitive life form, and then that evolved into us, and then we invented God. So that is the story. That's the counterfeit story. That's the artificial story, the replacement for the true story. I'm going to give a description, a more uh, 
detailed description of the lie, and then I'm going to follow that by talking about the motivation for the lie. Why do people say this? Why do people believe this? And then we're going to talk about the consequences of the lie, and then we'll move to the remedy. Friedrich Nietzsche in 1882 penned the words that are now famous, God is dead. That was 23 years after Charles Darwin provided the bullet for killing him, the, his 1859 work on the origin of species. And from there, it just took off. It was not a popular work initially. It took um, a couple of decades for even the naturalists to decide that Darwin had it right and that his description was going to become the new paradigm for understanding biology. Before that, um, academic naturalists and biologists all assumed exactly what we read, that the created kinds were each created separately. Darwin's work changed that, but it's interesting how it changed not because they found it to be convincing, because for many years they didn't. It's more like a peer pressure thing, where gradually the more forceful and more influential scientists started to push this, and eventually you felt as though you were falling behind if you didn't accept this. And so by the 1870s, by the mid-1870s, this became the standard way of viewing life. It had not been so even in the universities before that. I'm going to quote here Richard Dawkins. You may have heard of him. He's maybe the most uh, vitriolic, atheist, <clears throat> Darwinist, uh, and a very talented author. So he's a very prolific writer. He wrote in one of his books, it's really his best defense of Darwinism, uh, so if you want a good defense of Darwinism and, and to see what's wrong about it, I would recommend his book, The Blind Watchmaker, that came out in the 1980s. There he said, natural selection, the blind, unconscious, automatic process which Darwin discovered and which we now know is the explanation for the existence and apparently pur purposeful form of all life, has no purpose in mind. It has no mind and no mind's eye. It does not plan the future. It has no vision no foresight, no sight at all. It is this blind process that took blind, purposeless molecules, matter, fashioned it into primitive, single cellular life, and then natural selection became a process, and mutation and selection took it from there to create everything that we see around us, everything living and breathing, including us. That is the lie. It's well known. You will encounter it if you're a student. <laughs> You'll encounter it at an earlier age today than you did in my generation or the generations before that. Let's look now at the motivation for the lie. And here, there is equivocation because atheists will commonly say, it's very common, you will have heard this, I became an atheist because I studied science, or I became an atheist because I read great thinkers. As though, and this is sort of the enlightenment fallacy, as though the more clearly you think and the more you look at reality, the more you realize that faith is built on myths and the truth is that God is not there. It's as though this is a rational process that people abandon God and embrace his absence. And nothing could be further from the truth. The most honest, the most candid atheists are even frank about this. They do not claim that. They don't say, 
I became an atheist because I studied science or because I studied great um, philosophers. They say I became an atheist because I don't want there to be a God. <laughs> I just don't want the world to be like that. I'm going to read some quotes from several of these. One of these, again, he didn't say it in quite these words. He wasn't quite as candid. But Richard Dawkins, uh, in 2009, he funded a London bus ad campaign where on these big double-decker red London buses in bright colors covering the whole side of the bus, it said, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And when I first saw that, I scratched my head and thought, that doesn't make any sense to me. If I even momentarily entertain the possibility that, that there's no God, that doesn't lead me to stop worrying and causing me to start worrying. That doesn't give me any basis for enjoying my life. That would make my life meaningless. But it offers a glimpse into how he and other atheists are thinking about this. The reason he worries when he thinks about the possibility that God might exist is he's not living in a way that when he has to face God, he's going to see that to be a good thing. And he doesn't want to live in any other way. He worries when he thinks that God might be there. And so he wants to enjoy his life, meaning I want to live my life the way I'm living it. I don't want to bow the knee to any God, and therefore I don't want God to exist. It's a candid, in the end, admission of what is really behind atheism. My favorite atheist thinker is a man named Thomas Nagel. He's really a wonderful man. I've not met him personally. I've ex exchanged emails with him. He's a philosopher of mind who has been more honest and open about his atheism than any other atheist I've ever read. He wrote the following, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. One of the tendencies it supports is the ludicrous overuse of evolutionary biology to explain everything about life, including everything about the human mind. End quote. That's Thomas Nagel. Very frank. Here's another frank admission from an atheist. This one is Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World. He was, in fact, a grandson of Thomas Henry Huxley. This is a very influential family in, in Great Britain. Thomas Henry Huxley was nicknamed Darwin's bulldog. He was a close friend of Darwin. But whereas Darwin was kind of a meek and gentle personality, that was not Thomas Huxley. He was a bully. <laughs> and he was part of the force that got Darwin's theory to be um, followed without question by the end of the 1800s. So his grandson, Aldous Huxley, wrote the following. <clears throat> I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. 
The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatever. Remarkably candid. In the end, despite what some atheists will say, and they're trying to portray atheism in, a, in the most respectable terms, when you read these very candid accounts, you see that it's not at all what it's being presented as. Atheism in the end is more akin to a temper tantrum than to rational reduction. It's people fighting against their maker because that's what people have done from the beginning. Okay, that's the motivation behind the lie. I want to look now at the consequences of the lie. And here they are very grave indeed. Atheists try, again, very hard to mitigate the worst of these consequences of atheism, to try to construct an atheistic code of morals, to try to construct meaning and purpose, because they know that people can't live without these things. And they try very hard to come up with counterfeit versions of this while rejecting the God of Scripture. A man named Daniel Dennett wrote a book called Darwin's Dangerous Idea, and he describes it this way. Why couldn't, I'm quoting here, why couldn't the most important thing of all be something that arose from unimportant things? Why should the importance or excellence of anything have to rain down on it from high, from something more important, a gift from God? Darwin's inversion suggests that we abandon that presumption and look for sorts of excellence, of worth and purpose that can emerge bubbling up out of mindless, purposeless forces. So a desperate attempt to construct something that gives our lives meaning from nothing. But is that going to work? I don't think so. What sort of excellence are you going to have if it comes out of thin air? What sort of beauty and purpose are you going to have if you made it out of nothing? If it's grounded in nothing and you call it excellence, it's going to be a scary kind of excellence, isn't it? Adolf Hitler came up with a version of this, and he read Darwin's book and was inspired by it. The full title, by the way, of Darwin's book is On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. You can see what might have made light bulbs go off for Adolf Hitler when he read this. This became the manifesto for creating a pure race, 
the Aryan race and for extinguishing the inferior races. And he marched with that. And many, many Germans marched with him for that. Closer to home, something happened here in America that we don't talk much about because it's that embarrassing. It was called the eugenics movement of the first part of the 20th century, starting in about 1904 and continuing into the 1930s. I think the only thing that extinguished it was the rise of Nazism in Germany and people going, oh my goodness, what we're doing here is remarkably like what's happening there. Eugenics was a movement that sought to purify humanity based on a Darwinian understanding of humanity. The idea was that because of our medical intervention, because we care so much for people, we are actually allowing the less fit to survive, and not only survive, but to have offspring. And that's the last thing we should do if we're good Darwinists, because Darwinism is all about survival of the fittest. And that means, as hard as it may seem, the extinction of the unfit. And so this movement was about identifying portions of our culture, people who are not fit to have offspring, and even going so far as to forcibly sterilize 60,000 human beings in the United States because they were deemed by academics not to be fit to have children. This was a dark day in American history. I recommend, if you want to get some background on this, a one-hour documentary that my family watched about a week ago called Human Zoos, America's Forgotten History of Scientific Racism. It's about the eugenics movement. Planned Parenthood was born out of this very movement and is here with us today. Well, this gained traction in all the top academic circles, Harvard, MIT, Berkeley, um, all of the research institutions fell for this. And there were large conferences, gatherings, where they talked about eugenics, how we should take the human race forward, what we should do to keep it pure in Hitler-like terms. The church spoke out against it. The church referred to this text here and said, hang on. All human beings are made in the image of God without exception. You are violating this by treating some humans as though they are not human. The church spoke out against this. And that points us to the remedy. So we've talked about the a description of the lie. We've talked about the implications of the lie, the consequences of the lie, the motivation behind the lie. Now we want to talk about the remedy. What do we do about this? Well, I want to start by saying what we don't do. What we don't do is compromise. And this is important because in the church today, for the last couple of decades, really, there's been a growing movement of influential Christians, and I'm not questioning their faith, they are Christians, who are calling for compromise. They are saying that Darwinism has become so well-established that if we don't make our peace with it, we're going to be left behind. So we need to find a version of Christianity. We need to find a version of our doctrinal commitments that squares with science or we're going to be 
left behind. That is compromise, and it's being pushed very hard, as you probably know. There's a man, a colleague of mine, I know and respect very much. His name is William Lane Craig. He teaches frequently at Biola, and I love much of what he does, but he's erred on this, and I've called him out on this. He wrote this in his Reasonable Faith um, blog. As Christians, I'm quoting here, as Christians, you don't have to make a frontal assault on one of the pillars of contemporary science in the name of Christianity. That, in the minds of most people, will simply disqualify Christianity rather than evolutionary biology. If they hear that evolutionary biology is incompatible with theism, well, guess which belief is going to be given up? It's going to be theism because the evolutionary paradigm is so entrenched that theism, if it's incompatible with it, will simply be disqualified as incredible. But is that really our call? Are we we really supposed to say, are we supposed to have a strategic plan and say, if we're supposed to accomplish this in the end, then we need to change our strategy here. We need to worry about how we're being perceived. Or are we simply called to speak the truth and leave that end point to God? I think it's the latter, isn't it? After all, all kinds of entrenched Entrenched falsehoods need to be dislodged for lost people to come to salvation. And the Holy Spirit is in the business of doing just that. It's not our job to do the dislodging. It's our job to convey the truth and to represent the truth and to pray. Okay, the remedy is not compromise. The remedy starts with confrontation. We don't like that word, do we? But it starts with confrontation. The truth spoken into a culture that is embracing something other than the truth. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16 says this. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So we are to be ready to make a defense, but we are to do it with respect and gentleness. That's a key point. Some of us then, all of us are called to this, right? All of us are called to stand behind the truth. Some of us are called to a more technical Uh, critique of the error and a more technical defense of the truth. Some of us are called to apologetics. It's called this this activity of defending the truth and using argumentation to defend it. Many of us, I know, don't like argumentation, not this kind of argumentation. Some of us are born for it. Around my dinner table at home, there's a lot of, we do this well. Not, Not everyone does. But some of us are called to it, and I happen to be among those who who have been called to this. And I spent my career critiquing Darwinism at the molecular level, doing experiments on genes and bacteria, doing computational biology, mathematical models, having a lot of people joining me, publishing papers, and showing step by step, this actually does not work. This, This theory that's supposed to explain Everything we see here, it doesn't actually explain much of anything. It explains how working things, complex working things, can be adjusted a little bit, but it doesn't explain where you got the working thing. 
The working thing has to be there in order for selection to work. So the whole theory fails when you examine it technically. Most of us aren't going to do that. I'm here to tell you, having done that, it fails when you examine it technically. And the reason I want to tell you that is I want to give you courage in simply saying, I'm standing with the truths of Scripture. I'm not going to buckle. You can tell me that all the smart people believe this. I'm standing with this. Because Scripture always comes out on top in the end. I'm here to assure you that. Scripture, interestingly, after I spent 25 years on this with a technical critique, I, it occurred to me that Scripture doesn't enter into that. <laughs> Scripture's response to the lie is really quite different from this exhaustive finding out what the lie looks like, going into the lab, doing the tests, finding out that it fails, writing up the reports. Scripture's answer to this lie is this. I'll summarize it. I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing it. Stop your foolish rebellion and open your eyes. That's what Scripture says. It doesn't give any time to argumentation on this. Scripture is written as though it is obvious if you open your eyes that God has made us and everything around us. It does not require an argument. It simply requires you to stop fighting. Open your eyes and look around you. Psalms 14 and 53 begin with this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Okay, so these aren't my words. When you take the path of atheism, you're taking a foolish path according to Scripture. The book of Romans, the first chapter, expands on this. And I'm going to read a passage, Romans 1, verses 18 to 23, about how obvious and clear this is to everyone and about how guilty we are for rebelling against it. Romans 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their, in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals, and creeping things. If this is true, if we believe this, then there are no genuine atheists. Nobody actually in their heart of hearts believes God is not there. They all know he is, and they are resisting the truth. They aren't truly atheists. They're all pretending. They are suppressing what they know to be true. A psychology professor from UC Berkeley named Alison Gopnik wrote the following in a Wall Street Journal article. She said, by elementary school age, children start to invoke an ultimate godlike designer to explain the complexity of the world around them, even children brought up as atheists, end quote. And I take her to be an atheist, so she's not approving of this. She's saying, oh, this is a problem. Even in an atheist home, by the age of four, the kids, when they look at a butterfly, they say, that was made by a godlike designer. And then 
you have to scramble and educate that out of them. So that was the point of her article. She was saying, we need to start earlier educating kids on Darwinism because they get this wrong idea in their head and it seems to come not from their parents, it's innate. The reason it's innate is because it's obvious. <laughs> if you look at a butterfly that was made by a godlike designer, chance does not produce things like that. Well, the cosmic authority problem that Thomas Nagel referred to is not limited to atheists, is it? And in fact, this passage about how much we deserve God's condemnation is not limited to atheists. I said there's no, there, there, there are no genuine atheists, but the flip side of that is everyone, every one of us sort of toys with atheism in a sense. In the sense that although we know that God exists, but the atheists do as well, don't we all at times push him away and pretend he's not there or kind of wish he wasn't there or find him to be an inconvenience? That's, that's our fallen nature, that we, we all find ourselves pushing him aside and, and pretending that we're in charge of our own lives. All of us do this. We've all participated in a lie. We may not call ourselves atheists, but we've all pushed him away. And we prefer to claim ownership over, over ourselves than to acknowledge his ownership of us. And this started uh, way back in the garden. So the description of this is in Genesis 3, following on from our text in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I won't read from this because it's familiar. God has created in this very deeply personal way Adam and Eve and placed them in a beautiful garden and said, you may eat from every tree in this garden except this one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so what do Adam and Eve do? They listen to the serpent, and yet the serpent could not have deceived them apart from their willingness to go this way, right? Apart from their willingness to believe something false about God, the serpent would have had no power over them. They were willing, and we share in that willingness. We descend from Adam and Eve. We are born with a fallen nature, and we walk in the way that they did by pushing God away and we receive upon ourselves the same condemnation, the same judgment that they did. God had said that in the day you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And when they did, they were cursed. And the curse on humanity was, you're now going to die. You, you came from the dirt, and to the dirt you shall return. And that's our state to this day, that we push God away, and we deserve this condemnation just as surely as Adam and Eve did. And here we see what's actually being pointed to in Genesis 1, the account of the creation of humanity. And we said how personal it is. It's in the answer to this predicament that it becomes most profoundly personal. <clears throat> because here we see that this conversation within the Godhead, let us make God in our image was pointing to something far more profound than you would realize if you only had the book of Genesis. And that is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as they're saying this in conversation with one another, they know that God the Son 
is going to create a kind and become one of that kind. And this is the most personal aspect of creation. When they were having this conversation saying, let us make man in our image and in our likeness, they were also knowing God the Son is going to step into this and become one of these, not a chimp, not a butterfly, a human being. And so that is part of what they mean when they say, let us make God in our image and in our likeness. They know that that likeness is going to become profound when Jesus becomes one of us, born of a human being walking on the planet the way we do. 100% human, 100% God. This is described beautifully how God can become man, which is still a profound mystery. It's described beautifully in the second chapter of Philippians. Starting with verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in obedience to God the Father, God the Son became the remedy to this predicament the lie that we've all participated in and the judgment that we receive was taken upon him, Jesus, on the cross, who came to be one of us, completely human, divine, to live a perfect life and to lay that down on the cross, receiving upon himself the punishment that we deserved for our sins, that we might receive a righteousness that we don't deserve. Paul, in the book of Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, says it this way, God has, de God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So, what do we do with all of this? We stand for the truth. We do not allow ourselves to be intimidated by the lie. And that doesn't mean that we understand all the aspects of the lie. There's a technical side to the lie that very few people are going to understand. Stand firm and know that Scripture is going to come out on top of all of these lies. The most potent thing apart from simply quoting scripture that you can do if you're in dialogue with an unbeliever, with an atheist or an agnostic or any unbeliever, is to give your own testimony because that is your truth, your personal truth that connects to scripture. You can say, I don't know anything about natural selection or I don't know anything about molecular evolution, but I do know this. I was lost and now I'm found. And no one 
can deny that. It's a work, it's a miracle that has been worked by God upon you. And it has a very powerful effect on people who are otherwise wanting to resist God. So if you have not experienced this renewal yet, if, if you have not experienced this remedy, if you're still toying with a lie and some of this sounds new to you, I invite you to receive the gift of salvation that has been offered to us, that has been purchased by the blood of Jesus to become a member of his family. Speak to someone, maybe an elder, and I think we have a prayer, we have a prayer team? Blue tent, over there. Prayer, oh, in the back, blue tent. Go speak with someone. If this is something that is new to you, or if you've heard it and for some reason have not responded to it, today is the day that you should respond. Let me close this in prayer. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We look at the heavens, we look at the things that you have made, and they are so enormous and so beautiful and so powerful that they speak of your power and your beauty, your majesty. And we do feel small. We echo the words of David when we look at these things. We say, why do you care about us? But you do. And you demonstrated that care most potently in your own son, Jesus, by sending him here to be a propitiation for our sins, to take our place, receiving your punishment, and in doing so, imparting his righteousness to us, a righteousness that's otherwise totally foreign to us. Thank you, Father, that despite the fact that the world goes so far astray, despite the fact that the, that the lies seem to grow in magnitude and the people who are pushing them seem to push ever harder, that your truth is real, that your Holy Spirit is at home in us. You have taken up residence within us to give us the strength to stand for the truth. Father, may we do that with conviction and with courage to speak the truth to a world that so desperately needs it. And we pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.